Hello, this is J. Khadija Abdurakman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Thursday, February 11th, 2021. It's 3.34 Eastern Standard Time. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the director of We Be Imagining, and I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mandel. What's good, Ilan? Hey, Khadija. Uh, my name is Ilan Mandel. I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech, and I use he, him pronouns. Dope. And we're here today with Robin Kaplan, a researcher at Data and Society and PhD candidate at Rutgers University in the School of Communication and Information Studies. She conducts research on issues related to platform governance and content standards. Her most recent work investigates the extent to which organizational dynamics at major platform companies impact the development and enforcement of policy geared towards limiting disinformation and hate speech and the impact of regulation, industry coordination, and advocacy that can can play in changing platform policies. How are you doing today, Robin? I'm doing great. I realized I need to update my bio a little bit, but I'm doing doing pretty well. I know. It's funny. As I was reading that, I'm like, hmm, are you, are you still a PhD candidate? I am actually. I am set to defend on July 1st. So now that's going to be like actually on record. So I don't know if I should say that. Um, and yeah, it's been like a really, really long process. I've been working full time as I've been doing my PhD for like eight years. Um, and I've decided to just kind of finally do it to set the, set the date and get just it. Done. Sometimes it feels like academia never ends. Um, and I think it's really interesting that you're defending your dissertation now at a time where I feel like all of Twitter has suddenly ha- had a PhD in <laughs> platform governance and content moderation. Yeah. And maybe that's a place where we could start. Um, just because the immediate context like this year feels like it's been many and that's hard to say even after 2020. Um, but I feel like with the storming at the Capitol and QAnon being on the forefront of everyone's mind and 45 getting banned, that one, everybody has become a specialist on social media and on free speech. And so what has been kind of what you've seen about like the parameters and the limitations of that conversation and what does it feel like to have expertise in something that everyone is now claiming? This is such a fantastic question. And it's something I've been thinking about a ton over the entire course that I've been doing this work, but like particularly lately. So we started this work back in 2015. Um, We had a grant at Data Society that was called Who Controls the Public Sphere in an Era of Algorithms? It's a terribly named grant. Um, a total mouthful every single time we tried to talk about it. But basically it was this kind of small exploratory grant that we got and it was kind of, it was a provocation. Um, It was intended for us to explore all of the various ways that um, society could be impacted as more and more communication centralized onto a few um, platforms that tended to use algorithms to prioritize content. So we did this um, small project. I actually because I've had this kind of history of doing this double life, I, I was originally set to, <laughs> I was originally set to do my dissertation work around um, criminal justice. Actually, I was looking at um, how org dynamics impacted what data gets collected, um, and I ended up needing to tie all of my work to this grant because of just the timing. So I actually organized my qualifying exams around this um, around this grant. And we produced a a couple of papers and a set of case studies that looked at kind of worst case scenario. This was like early date in society, us being the naysayers, what could possibly, like just imagining all of the the things that could possibly go wrong. And we brought in um, 
a bunch of academics for a workshop um, and we discussed these case studies together. So it was anything from like the, uh, the, the quantified newsroom, algorithms of soft power. So like maybe state actors asking platforms to prioritize some content at the expense of others. Um, there was a case study on um, Russian disinformation um, over Ukraine. Um, and we got all these academics to come together um, to consider basically like how serious this stuff was. And everybody said, you know, these look like they could be problems, but these are problems way off in the future. We don't need to worry about them now. Um, and within the next year, basically almost all of these issues had totally blown up. Um, and so what I was left doing, because I kind of needed to really shift my work into this direction so I could kind of continue to live this double life of getting my dissertation and continuing my, my work um, with data and society, I was studying something that was really, really unfolding um, as I was studying it. Um, and it's this like constant challenge. Um, and I was asked the other day, like what I would do differently if I was starting it now. And I actually honestly said like, I don't know if I would choose this. Like it is such a challenge to, um, to, study, the, to, to study something as it's kind of constantly changing every single day. And it's becoming this like huge, huge topic of public conversation. No, that's really helpful. And I was wondering, could you say a little bit more specifically about what some of those challenges are? Because I know that from the outside, it's easy to critique. Like, I, I think I was telling you a little bit before we started recording is that I was looking into these issues about Ethiopia as relates to search and content moderation and Huawei safe cities surveillance. And I was asking around like people who are who I kind of consider experts, ex experts in this area. And I was asking, like, what do you know about the global south and like, who can you connect me to? And I found that so much of it was uh, very confined to the U.S. and even with the EU, like very, very narrowly even there. And so it feels so easy to say what the field is not doing. But like, what do you feel like from your perspective? Are there constraints and the limitations and the challenges as you've been navigating it? So one major challenge is that as a researcher, you know, so much of the information about what's going on, how platforms are creating um, their own content policies is happening behind closed doors. And it's not just the closed doors of the, uh, the black box of the algorithm. It's really like the black box of these companies. Just very little information kind of comes out. Um, even when you're a researcher who does work um, where you're interviewing these companies, which is the work that I do. Um, you have to be very kind of careful in how you navigate these dynamics because much of the much of the time it kind of feels like you're getting these really really canned response uh, responses and your job is to really parse through and figure out what they're saying and what they're not saying. The other issue is that the their willingness to be open or not open really depends on how they're being perceived um, in the in the public sphere. And so you could have like a very strong relationship with a company that suddenly gets totally closed off. Or um, what's happening right now is that like weirdly, Facebook seems to be the only company that wants to engage with researchers. And so most of the work is kind of happening about Facebook very strangely. Um, e but even then it's like a very, very carefully controlled um, relationship where you kind of feel like a, like a constituent being managed a little bit. Um, yeah, other challenges are just the fact that the the object keeps moving. Um, so there's new problems and new concerns that come off on a, come come about on a daily basis. Um, these companies keep shifting. 
um, different countries' responses to these companies um, are shifting and unfolding as well. So it's a really kind of unique position to be in, to be able to watch all this stuff happen. But you don't get to be able to take like kind of that bird's eye view where you can um, take a little bit of distance, <laughs> do like a proper discourse analysis and timeline to try and figure out what happened when and why and, and whatnot. It's, it's like a it's a very hard thing to do when you're really, really in the thick of it. And I'd say we went back to um, your piece. I'm trying to see what year is this now? The content or con- context moderation about the artisanal community relying industrial approaches. Yeah, 2018. So we, we've we gone back to this a lot because it helps, you know, I think so many of these infrastructures are invisibilized to the everyday user um, that there aren't really words to kind of describe these different forms of organization that happen depending on the platform. And I was wondering if you could give a brief summary of the taxonomy that you outlined there and just any reflections of whether, you know, in the time that's passed, is there something that you would revise about how things were framed in that piece? Yeah. Okay. So the piece basically it was based off of interviews I did with um, over ten different platform companies, and the goal of the interviews initially it kind of feeds into some work that I'm still doing now, but it was really trying to understand what their relationships were with other different with other stakeholders, um, who they solicited input from when they were making decisions and and whatnot. Um, but what ended up coming out of it, I, I realized that before I was actually going to talk about that, I needed to address a lot of the differences between these companies because the way that they engaged with people like really, really differed fundamentally based on like how big and how small they were. Um, and so what I did was I took from these interviews, basically all of them, I had them describe their, their organizational process. I also had them describe like the organizational process at other companies that they might compete with or that are in the same space. Um, and I kind of looked at the conventions or like really the common ways that um, people at people in this field talk about the work that they're doing. Um, and what I ended up finding was that there was kind of three different strategies and they're not mutually exclusive. Um, after the way that that report lays it out, it does kind of seem like they are, but they're, they're really not. Um, and there, so there's this small scale, I call it artisanal, um, which is kind of embarrassing in retrospect, but it's really the, it's the term that they used inside of it. And so I kind of wanted to preserve that um, as like indicative of the way that they're thinking about it. Um, and that's this very small scale individual um, approach. This is generally companies that have very small team sizes. Um, they may, they're most likely not outsourcing these decisions, um, which is a very common practice in the platform industry. Uh, they, they're basically making kind of individual level responses to each um, piece of content that's flagged. They're dealing with a lot fewer flags, which is why they can do this. Um, they take a variety of different approaches when they're trying to address the content. So they may kind of work to educate users. There could be kind of an ongoing exchange um, when they're trying to make hard decisions around like gray area content and they're not quite certain violates their policies. They'll do things like have mock um, trials or Slack polls or like really, really engage with each other. Um, and, and, and try and figure out what the right answer is for the particular situation. And that was really contrasted uh, with my research participants um, with the industrial model for content moderation. And that's the one that's used by the major platforms like Facebook and YouTube. Um, and that's these kinds of these companies that are dealing with tens of thousands of workers, if not hundreds of thousands of workers that are located all around the world, um, often outsourced. Uh, basically what they have done, they may have started out with an artisanal model, um, 
And that's what we did find that Facebook started out with this kind of small team doing that as they grew. But as they grew, they kind of had to make the, or they didn't have to, they made the trade-off where they decided, okay, well, it's easier for us as we're trying to train up all of these different people and then eventually automate content moderation decisions. If we try and just apply kind of these standardized rules um, that, that um, apply across the site. Uh, and so that was kind of likened by a couple of our participants to a decision factory where you take these big abstract concepts and you break them down into as small a, a, like a concept as you could so that people could just execute um, again and again and again. Um, and those are the, that's, those are the, that's, that's content moderation that places a huge amount of demands on workers. It's incredibly psychologically taxing. Um, there's a lot of lawsuits that are currently unfolding with workers that are in that situation. And then there's the community reliant model. Um, and that's a model we all know of. So Reddit and, and Wikimedia uses that model where they're relying on volunteers from the community um, that have often been part of that community for a really long time. They have this kind of um, different way of distributing how they make rules. So there is this base set of rules that exists at the parent company that's kind of just the bare minimum. And then for each different part of the site, um, volunteers might put on their own rules on top of that. So they kind of called it a federal system. But weirdly enough, so a lot of these other companies, the, the industrial companies like Facebook, also include elements of this community-reliant moderation. So with things like pages, um, people are really responsible for moderating a, a, lot of the, a lot of the content that's posted on there. Um, what was the second part of your question? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just saying, is there anything, I know you commented a little bit on the term artisanal, but is there anything that you would revise kind of given the three years that has elapsed since you released the paper? Um, I think I would have done it a little bit more systematically. At the time, it was, I mean, it was very systematically done in terms of the interviews, but at the time we were really, really fighting for access. It was like this very brief window of time where all of the platforms were like, oh, this seems to be like an issue that the public is concerned about. Okay, we'll talk to researchers. And so we really got in in that like very, very small, like short period. And there was a, a, a like Kate Klonick kind of started developing her relationships, I think, um, around that time, but I'm not certain. Um, and she's a she's a good friend of mine, but um, there was a few different reports that were coming out around the same time. So what I would have done, I would have pushed for um, because I tend to look at the organizational dynamics of these companies. I would have pushed for harder numbers, um, which they were really really reluctant to give. We couldn't necessarily get org charts um, unless you they were giving them out at the content moderation at scale uh, conferences. So. So in rare cases that they like brought them there, um, I could actually gain access to them. But in other cases, I really couldn't. Um, they were really reluctant to give hard numbers in terms of how many workers they had. I think I really would have pushed for more there just to make it a little bit more clear um, and to be able to kind of do more properly um, comparative work. Um, and then... Yeah, it's a, hard, it's a hard piece. There's a lot I would change, but... Uh, it was also it also helped me think through a lot of these issues really really early on when I started working on it. So it's hard to regret this kind of like this work that helped shape your thinking so you could do more thinking later. <laughs> I'm I'm curious as as platform governance has become more of a like a mainstream topic that people are discussing. 
you you have these things like the the Facebook Oversight Board or these like kind of federated models like Blue Sky, right? Like what Twitter's doing. And like ignoring for a moment whether or not these are like actually real things or just kind of PR tools that that they're using. Would you would you try to graph those structures onto these models or are they are they a fundamentally different thing or or like how do you think about those kinds of uh attempts to uh like redefine publicly their own forms of moderation? I think I think they're part I think they're part of this in that like they're resting on many of the same kinds of assumptions and rhetoric that I heard um, throughout these interviews, uh, which was the various ways that platforms are trying to lend legitimacy to their decision-making process. Um, so there was like a, a couple of common themes, most, most, and I've done a lot of work on some other ways they're gesturing towards like foundational communications, policymaking principles and expertise. But really in my interviews, what I heard again and again were this like legalistic or governmental terms. So like, like I said before, like one company referred to themselves as like a federal system. I heard somebody else say that their process was like a mini legislature or um, other people like stressed again and again that they use precedent to make their decisions. And so when you think about it in that logic, which makes sense because a lot of the people I was speaking to were lawyers, then something like the Facebook Oversight Board is a natural extension of that, um, where they're thinking about it in terms of like this yeah, judicial model where they have appeals that are going up, um, up the chain to this final kind of big board. Um, in my view, like... <sighs> it's just hard to know what to do with those metaphors, to be honest. It really, really is. Um, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about what they mean and why companies are talking about them themselves in that, in those terms, especially when, you know, they're being criticized for having too much power. It just seems like a strange way to talk about the work that they're doing. Um, but I think it's also them trying to lend some sort of kind of stability to what they're doing and use terms that they think the public would be like more familiar with or more comfortable with because of how important these decisions are um, in, in people's lives. Um, so, yeah, it's a big, really important question. And um, I think that, yeah, I think that they're kind of a natural extension of how these companies have been thinking about the work they're doing. Yeah, well, that leads me to my next question, because one of the things that I was thinking about in relationship to 45 being banned um, on Twitter was just that how quickly the conversation on platform governance became whether or not the way it was being governed is fair. And I was mm -hmm. just like, how did we get to this point where it's legitimate for private companies to govern? And I think that that moment was like a, a red flag for a lot of people about how much power they have. But I think because so much of the technology is invisibilized, I'm not clear that people exactly know what that means. And it starts to cross over into some of the like conspiracy theory stuff. Um, but that's kind of, I feel like for me, when I'm thinking about the shift over the last couple of years, it's become more and more clear how much power they have and how... Um, there's just like no regulatory, there's no like real regulatory system that is at all inhibiting the amount of power. And we don't have, it's almost inconceivable to imagine a public interest tech social media platform. We're just so used to having our digital space uh, mediated by some kind of proprietary system. I mean, we have no real alternative to Zoom and Google Meets. I mean, there's Jitsi, but it's glitchy. Um, and yeah. just, I, I, guess, I guess in that context, like how are you thinking about, what does it mean that, they even have this ability to govern and you know what does that mean for accountability 
So I'm at a couple of minds on this. So in the past, and I'd, I'd say like, I've kind of, I adhered to this position and I moved away for, from it for a bit. And now I've kind of come back to it. But in the past, I've argued, and I've, I have a paper on this, that these companies are media companies and the work that they're doing is not that different from what the media industry has done in the past. Um, and the concerns that we have about these companies actually are not that different from the concerns that we've had about media companies in the past. Um, one of the interesting things about the Facebook Oversight Board is that it really resembles this like funny advisory council that was adopted by NBC in the 1920s. And in the 1920s, we were in a very similar moment that we're in right now. Um, tensions were, in, political tensions were incredibly high. You had the emergence, because of radio, of a few like charismatic personalities that were really beginning to take on and, and garner more and more public attention. Um, I'm going to get the history wrong on this, but RCA, which was the Radio Corporation, Corporation of America, was basically nationalizing, combining with another company, and they were becoming NBC. And there was a huge, huge, huge amount of concerns about this new nationalized media. Um, and in response to that, what NBC did, and it was actually really funny at the time, because we had no confirmation that the oversight board is like a PR strategy, but the NBC Advisory Council was actually suggested by a PR agency. Um, so they set up this advisory council. It was very similar to the oversight board in that there were like these kind of huge people of the day that were appointed to it. There were like jurists, people who had um, ran for president before. There were heads of labor unions. Um, there it was all white people because of because of America, um, but they included like a Protestant, uh, somebody from a Jewish organization, uh, uh, somebody from the head of a Catholic organization, a women's organization. Um, and basically, the, it was very similar. They also said this was a part of the Court of Appeals for um, um, people or for, yeah, people who were needed to appeal um, decisions that NBC, the company, had made about their um, programming and what they were willing to broadcast or not broadcast. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that what we're seeing right now is actually not, not that new. Um, and for every major media, we've had kind of similar concerns about power, um, centralization, control, the amount, the amount of power that these companies have to um, control what speech is available and what speech is not available. Um, so to some degree, I see, I see these companies within just the history of media uh, more generally. Oh, sorry. I didn't know if you wanted to add something. I mean, <laughs> I see your point. And I'm like, um, I mean, I think, you know, uh, my, you know, it's funny. My kids think that I'm like ancient. You know, I, I feel like I'm only 32, but they always ask me, it was the TV in color when I was growing up. Um, and in fact, it was. Um, but I feel like a big difference with the TV is that like all of our social relationships were mediated over it. And I mean, you could argue they were always collecting data about like, you know, different demographics and what shows they were watching. But it just wasn't as all encompassing. I mean, people's work relationships weren't mediated by it. You didn't necessarily have the same. I mean, I remember as a teenager going to Manhattan Neighborhood Network to do public access um, television shows. And that was like the one area where you feel like you could push in to be on TV, but it had a small viewership, et cetera, et cetera. But right now, it's, there's an aspect that almost everybody has access, but there's so much information. And I don't know if like media was ever collecting as much data um, and modifying people's behavior to the degree that we're seeing like on social media. 
I think you're right. I think that, so there's obviously an issue of scale. Um, I think that there's some other major differences, which is why I've kind of like pushed and pulled with this argument over the years. The other major difference is that you have like traditional media and user generated content living in the same space. Um, what I'm talking about specifically are these kinds of decisions that they're making around like these big, these big events or these big actors or, or whatnot about whether or not they're willing to have them in, th in these spaces or not. Um, that these are decisions that media has made continually in the past. But I think you're very right that the there's definitely parts of these companies that are fundamentally different that um, um, kind of really shift um, the uh, shift power dynamics um, and that it's really important to consider that. So uh, I want to I want to get back to Khadija's point, but before that, I just like to follow the historical allegory. Like, what actually ended up happening, right? The only thing that that I can think of is like the the FCC fairness doctrine, right? It becomes like how this gets mediated, but maybe I'm I'm probably missing a lot of history. Like, how does no, this actually I, play yeah. out? So eventually, this so this was brought in before even the Radio Act. Um, some of this gets kind of carved away as well or becomes just redundant um, with the um, Telecommunications Act of 1934, but it really just fizzles out. Um, there were just not enough, not not that there wasn't enough concerns. Uh, basically, the board ended up becoming like a, a body that determined more just general programming decisions, and they did uh, very specific appeals. Um, and it just fizzled out throughout the years. So that being said, what I would like, I just, I think time, we need to, time, we, we need to give the Facebook Oversight Board a little bit of time. But it's emerging in a very, very similar moment that this advisory council did as well. There was eventually regulation that came in. Who knows what's going to happen here? There's a million different proposals on the table. None of them seem to actually be going anywhere or be able to be going anywhere. Um, but that, you know, we need to actually give this a couple of years and, and see see if it's around and see what its impacts are. Well, it's interesting that you say that just because I guess I'm surprised by your level of optimism. Um, I'm probably more well, I'm not optimistic. <laughs> I'm not optimistic. Well, I mean, <laughs> it's just I haven't heard a lot of people's reaction to the Facebook oversight board be they need more time. Like it's no, hard no, to take no, the no, whole. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. you and I have okay, also okay. become doomers, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doom filled. I'm not doom filled. But here, go ahead, please, please clarify, no, Rob, because I heard, no, I just no. heard the last part about the time. I'm sorry, no. So, like, I am actually, I'm, I'm a cynic here. I just think we want, we want to take a long view of history, mostly to limit the optimism that I'm seeing about this thing. That I'm seeing, like, all of these grand claims about what this oversight board is going to do, and I just don't understand how it can do that with a company that operates at a scale like Facebook does. We also know that Facebook wants this to be some sort of like an actual self-regulatory model that other companies are signing on to. Maybe. Um, and then, you know, you may have like some sharing of standards and whatnot. I don't see any other companies signing on. All I, so what I'm saying is actually like before we're too optimistic about it, we need to give it a couple of years because we have this kind of tendency to see anything that tech is doing as very uniquely new and very uniquely special and able to shape the world. But it's not. There's been lots of different efforts like this throughout the years and they, nothing's really happened. Media regulation is hard. 
media self-regulation is really hard because we're often dealing with like very, very undefined problems. And regulation really works when you have a defined problem. So I just think that like, you know, I, I'm just not certain this is going to last. That's basically what I'm saying. I mean, one, we're always here for the cynicism. So I appreciate that. <laughs> that's that's I, I appreciate like, that. Khadija, no, I'm not. <laughs> well, at the same time, I'm a little bit like, so, I mean, I, I think a lot about like social media is more than the site at which speech happens. And just even thinking about the content moderation aspect, like I think that the part that's scary about tech when you're thinking about scale is the scale to which it has reorganized labor. And so having like these giant factories of people who are working, uh, doing content moderation and being like, you know, pushed into post-traumatic stress disorder, or, like facilitating genocide in Myanmar. It's like those type of things that give it a level of, I don't know, urgency or just feel like qualitatively different than previous iterations of media. Um, but I was going to say specifically to the Facebook oversight board, I think like the particular trigger point it hits is feeling like, I mean, it's not, have you, you seen Sorry to Bother You, right, Robin? I haven't. Oh, you have not lived. You have not lived. Okay. Well, I will not give you the spoiler it comes alert. Up once an episode, Robin, just, just to okay, be clear. Okay. <laughs> I, I am, when, when you log off, I don't care that you have an infant, like you need to prioritize this. This is actually perfect viewing for a dead president's weekend. Oh, um, perfect. <laughs> And so I'm trying to figure out, there's like so many aspects of this movie, I'm trying to figure out how to sum it up without giving you a spoiler alert, but basically there's this company that is kind of a signifier for Amazon that buys up the whole commerce stack, and then let's just say they put housing like within the work model to cut down on costs, uh, but basically there's one aspect of it where they're hiring their own resistance, and I think that Facebook Oversight Board kind of triggers that. And we're just in this moment where so many of people, to be honest with you, that are like data society, AI now, you know, all of these major think tanks that we think about that kind of made their career on the critique, then go on later to work for the companies. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that like Facebook and Twitter in particular have done a really excellent job at hiring their most vocal critics. And I think there's a Don't certain level Uber. of Uber. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think there's a certain level of despair at um, at what feels like not necessarily there's a more decentralization than saying like it's an orchestrated resistance, um, but feeling like everything has been bought out um, and that there is particularly with the existing funding structure that, you know, even the most prestigious conferences around computer science that are asking these questions about fairness, accountability, transparency, um, are funded <laughs> by big tech. And so I feel like that concentrates so much in the Facebook oversight board. So I'm just curious, what's your take on kind of the resistance being bought by the big tech? No, I mean, I totally agree. Like it's, it's a tough, so like, it's no secret the Data Society was started from a, by a grant uh, from MSR. Um, MSR is, like, it's a much different way of organizing this stuff. Um, and we maintained our independence the entire time. Uh, but the funding has come from tech. And so I have kind of two points. The first point is to say, we need to consider what happened prior to these companies coming in that allowed them to come in in that way. So what got defunded? Um, that meant that none of these organizations had any funding or none of the none of the academic institutions had any funding. That meant it meant that these tech companies are the only source of funding around. Um, or that these like, you know, um, 
foundations, which are also private money that are older money that are things like Rockefeller or Carnegie or um, these other dominant industries of the past that are now operating through foundations. So what happened there that made that the dominant model? And that kind of extends to things like Amazon and the outside outsourcing of this content, this content moderation. So how were the laws changed that allowed this massive outsourcing of labor? Um, how was work deregulated that it allowed this kind of this, the way that labor has been fundamentally changed by these companies um, in terms of classifying people as contractors and not as employees. Like it's really important for us to look at how institutions change that allowed a lot of this stuff to come in rather than only looking at the platforms themselves. Because if we don't look at what changed to allow this stuff to come in, we're not going to be able to change it back. Um, it's just kind of mythifying these companies to a point where it's just giving them way too much power. Um, and so that's what I kind of stress against. Um, in terms of um, subsuming critique, it's a major issue and concern. Um, I do a lot of work uh, looking at how these platforms are kind of networking governance. Um, so basically how they're acting as how they're kind of pretending they're just like not pretending or they're like framing themselves as just one node in a network of people who make these decisions. Um, but in reality, you know, when you look at the amount of control that external stakeholders have when they're giving input to these companies, they have no idea what happens once that feedback is given to their contact and then it goes into the kind of machine of the, the corporation. Um, it's a major, major problem. I think that it's rampant across Silicon Valley right now. Almost every company is using kind of some form of this network governance. And in some ways they think they think, and they are like responding to critiques in the past that said they are making these decisions on their own and they needed to integrate more feedback from external stakeholder groups and other experts. So they're trying to reintegrate all of that expertise back into these companies. Um, but uh, it's being done in a very kind of funny way um, where it may be introducing a lot more op opacity. Um, it's distributing a lot of different responsibility. You have no idea how your opinion is being weighed against the opinion of somebody else who may be directly um, opposing you. Um, it may be used to kind of justify the decisions that these companies are going to be making anyway. Um, so it's kind of a very complicated area um, that I'm actually just in the middle of, of uh, studying. Well, I just, I, I guess not to harp on this point, but I, I, it's something that I've thought about a lot because on one level, I feel like I have been newly minted into the lower middle class and it's great. Like I, I have a good credit now. Um, I bought, a, I, I moved and I bought a whole bunch of stuff with my crate and barrel card. And then I got like 5% back. I feel like no middle-class people told me this. And then I earned like a whole bunch of furniture and just like the thought of poverty, uh, coming back looms over me. And so this question comes up about like, what kind of funding are you going to take? Because a lot of people, you know, they forget like, so what, how, how is one to subsist and to support your family when navigating this system? At the same time, it does feel like we need some more of a moral bright line because it is hard that if, you know, you feel like you're getting on this train where we all have this common enemy and we're talking about radical resistance and changing the system. And then those people are like, you know, one, two years later, like signing up to work for the system. Um, and so I guess like there's so much kind of industry, academia, policy center, like rotating door overlap. Um, but kind of where, how are you thinking about that? And like, how are you thinking about framing these questions around like, what is the moral consensus? Because at a certain point, 
Um, you know, how can, how can we really affect change given the power of these companies to the point that I saw there was a video circulating on Twitter about the Amazon workers. And I think in Alabama, they had the city come out and change the traffic light so that when workers were coming down the driveway, they wouldn't stop at the union organizers and they would just keep going because the light would turn green. And so, you know, at a certain point, if everyone's going to go work for these companies that we're resisting, we will have no resistance. So where, where do you see the moral bright line? That's a really, really great question. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a great question. It's not one I, I think I'm like totally fit to answer because I've never, uh, I've never been in a position where I'd, I'd want, where I thought that that was the right direction um, for me to go. Um, and that's very specific to the kind of work that I do, um, which kind of depends on seeing these things from the outside. Um, and it's a really hard question. I don't know, Khadija, you, you know, this is a really, really hard question <laughs> because I have a lot of friends that have been in that position and um, it's, it's, it's difficult for me to, to talk about. No, I hear you. I mean, this is part of like ongoing questions. And then even the, we had the last episode, I don't know if you saw it, but how uh, big tech affects the homies. And it was our friend uh, Alejandro Villapando who lives in South Central LA and just talking about like on a street level, what has been the impact of, you know, Elon Musk building up his SpaceX and um, kind of these different questions. But on there, I was talking about even just hate writing uh, Twitter threads about what's going on in Ethiopia, like one of the major tech companies reached out to me and this caused a moral dilemma for me because I'm like, on principle, I could ignore them. But then I asked like, who, who else are you in conversation with around Ethiopia and these particular set of issues? And they were like, no one. And there's not a whole bunch of people um, that are really looking into this area. And so it can be really challenging because sometimes in those contexts, you're like looking between the major tech corporation, armed militias, um, Western nation state backed NGOs and a government that's killing its own people. <laughs> so like, it's not to say that these questions are really obvious, um, but I feel like they're always there beneath the surface and everyone's so afraid to talk about them. And we just kind of sometimes go in cycles. So I know I it's true. You. It's just that, yeah, you know, I can't speak for other people's decisions. I can only speak for what I would do or what I wouldn't do. And that's just basically it unfortunately um well we were hoping that you would call people out by their full government name but i guess we can <laughs> if you have their social security numbers too feel free to shout that out uh, <laughs> or just shout out their books i, I would uh, take that <laughs> uh, another another kind of of monetization that that uh i i know that you've written about kind of tiered governance and demonetization Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, we, we've spoken with, uh, you know, like, uh, sex worker activists about kind of shadow banning and that kind of thing. And I think that this gets talked about a lot less than the kind of, oh no, they took down my, my shit posting. Um, and, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about like who makes money on the internet and, uh, who gets to make money and who gets to make the decisions about who gets to make money. This is a great question. Um, thank you. So yeah, you're speaking about some recent work I did with uh, Tarleton Gillespie. Uh, we published a paper called Demonetize the Shift in Terms of Labor and Compensation in the Platform Economy. Um, and basically what we were looking at was how platforms are kind of creating different sets of rules for different users. Um, 
and they're creating some distinctions between media organizations, traditional media organizations with which they have an ongoing ongoing financial partnerships with. Um, and then they have like other systems of governance that relate to the kind of vast majority of creators that are on their platform that have been making content in relation to um, how much of a following they have and whatnot. But that what that con what that paper also did basically it looked at kind of the perceptions that people had about how governance worked on these on this platform um, from the perspective of creators who were watching like maybe one user over here normally it was a kind of a traditional media organization not have advertising removed whereas they might have advertising removed for doing the same thing. Um, and the reasons why they thought, so all of these, there's a lot of work right now that's emerging on different folk theories of algorithms, how these um, companies function. This was work that like tried to extend that not only into algorithms, because a lot of demarketization happens through algorithms, um, and it can be a huge problem for uh, sex workers. And just members actually of the LGBTQ plus community, that's a huge um, uh, portion of the users that really get dinged because of the algorithms. Uh, but it also extends to how just the policies of these companies. Um, so how people make sense of how these companies kind of constantly shift and renegotiate um, their the terms under which they're going to engage with um, people who are on their platform, helping them make money, making money themselves. Um, so what was the rest of your question? I'm so sorry. I feel like I still have mom brain. So like halfway through, I'll forget the the question. So I, I think it's a little bit was rooted actually in something that that's not so much captured in the paper, but like you think about uh, you think about like memes and like uh, what was it Vine, right? Like with TikTok, you know, people who create these kinds of like cultural cultural moments and are and kind of go go uncompensated. And I, I don't know that there's a kind of a direct line connecting this, but you think about, you know, sex workers and their their use of these platforms and constantly being shadow banned or, or kind of removed in various forms. And and it's this this whole other kind of way that uh, values are are enacted by these platforms. Um, and and it becomes represented in their governance. But it, it it's a lot more real to me in terms of like who gets to make a living, who gets to like feed themselves and their family. And like, yeah. yeah, you know, like the dude who has like the funny cat can like make shirts. But, you know, like there's there's like, I think, pretty clear lines when we look at like who is making money on the Internet and who is not. And, and kind of how that's reflective of of the the things that are being encoded on these platforms. Yeah, no, I agree. This actually just goes back again to my view that these companies are becoming more like traditional media companies. They're not only like strengthening their relationship with actual just kind of media organizations, they're kind of closing down and or really shifting the terms of the participatory internet as we knew it. Um, and what's happening there is that we are seeing kind of a system of tiers emerge online um, where some users, so we just saw a case with Pornhub where they're now only allowing um, kind of verified users. And that was, of course, done to mitigate concerns about safety, um, particularly around children. But what it, it's also doing is really, really cutting off a lot of other um, content that um, was on the site that was being produced by, by um, individuals who weren't tied to these big production houses. Um, you see that all over the internet, um, on YouTube in particular, you know, there's these kinds of vague advertiser friendly standards that they do to, um, that they are tying to monetization. And what 
they're basically saying is like, you can produce that content, but we're not going to pay you for it. Um, and that's harming a lot of people who are talking about a lot of things. So, you know, they, there's this kind of misconception that it was done to target like the alt-right. None of these changes were actually done with that aim in mind. Um, but in who it's impacted, it's of course impa impacted um, um, those people, I think, but it's also impacted anybody who's talking about mental health, anybody who's talking about sex work, anybody who's talking about like just being LGBTQ plus, um, anybody talking about police brutality, talking about any political subject whatsoever. Um, and so it's really defining kind of who gets to talk about this, this content and demonetize, which is normally these kinds of these companies that they have these relationships with versus who, who doesn't, um, which are just most users. Well, also when we're thinking about who's getting paid, it's hard not to think about race and particularly it feels like black people are not getting paid. Um, I was thinking about Saidat Harry's um, piece in the wire that came out. Was it, I feel like time is ephemeral now. I think last month, yes, January, um, called Listening to Black Women, the Innovation Tech Can't Figure Out. And she makes this point that new platforms like Clubhouse further a model where they're using the content of black users while not investing in the infrastructure um, to disturbing results. And, you know, just also going back to like the, the researchers and the activists, I think a lot of the way race has been articulated has been around this idea of bias and disparate outcomes. Um, but do you feel, where do you see the role of a more like integrated analysis on race around platform governance and regulation? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think that we need to, or platforms really need to figure out what content they want to be incentivizing on these platforms. Um, and part of that is, you know, so black communities in particular were really shut out of traditional media in the, in the past. And so there's a lot of work that's been done. Um, there's this great paper by Meredith Clark, uh, Dean Freelon and Charlton McElwain, who's that said that when it came to black lives matter, social media was a fundamental way that people, that, um, people, the activists got their message out and they were able to bypass the, the narratives that were being promulgated by mainstream media, which were often highly inaccurate. So social media is really still this space where we're seeing a lot of organizing being done. Um, and it's still this space where, you know, we need to kind of keep it open um, for marginalized communities in particular. But not only that, these companies need to be more nuanced in how they're defining the categories of content that they don't want to monetize. Like, say that you don't want to monetize racist, white supremacist content. Say that you don't want to monetize conspiracy content. Say that, like, be more specific, because when you just say that you're not going to monetize politics, you cut off a huge, huge space for the production of news that does not get covered in mainstream media. Um, and they're just not willing to kind of make those distinctions or um, make those kind of tough calls. They just want to make do a big common ban. Um, and it's a real huge oversight. It's just awful. And I was going to ask, I feel like we've spent a lot of time thinking about what companies should and shouldn't do or what researchers should or should not do. Do you have any advice to kind of social justice organizations or activists that are producing content or using the platform to organize about how they should think about content moderation? In particular, I'm thinking about how many people um, or how many organizations have been um, deplatformed and then lost all of their content or have been even just producing all of these Zoom webinars and things like that and don't really think intentionally about the archives. 
do you have any kind of feedback to give those kind of organizations? Another really great question that I feel like I want to give, like, I wish I had a lot of time to really think about so I could give like a nice list for everybody. Um, I think starting where you suggested, um, archiving everything is a really great idea. Um, I tend to, I tend to think that communities, activist communities are very good at using these technologies. Um, when it comes to deplatforming, sadly, the best advice that I can give is having connections at these companies. One of the major ways that you see that um, people get around these deplatforming uh, decisions or, or when like an algorithm might ding or strike a piece of content is actually having relationships with these companies. And part of the big problem is that those who already have power are the ones that have access to these companies to begin with. Um, so that's not a call on, to, on these activist communities to be like, okay, well, develop these relationships because those can easily get subsumed again. It's a call for these companies to be kind of creating more even ways for people to access to be able to contest the decisions that, that they're making. Um, in terms of other advice, I feel like I'm failing right now. I'm fading a little bit. I'm so sorry. No, no, no problem. Okay. Um, just, fading just is the defining the... characteristic of this time, right? Like we're we're all fading. <laughs> I know we're all fading, and I'm just like, yeah, yeah the end of the day, and none of nobody in my family slept last night, and so and I'm about to have to go pick up my my son from daycare, so trying to get my energy back. Cool, cool. We're almost done, by the way. We don't we don't go past an hour, so 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 don't worry. The, the end the end is near. Or like uh, Zizek likes to say, the light at the end of the tunnel is that of an oncoming train. <laughs> 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 just a sprinkle of so one situation. <laughs> uh, you know he makes some good points. There's a lot out there, but he makes some good points. No, um, I don't disagree. <laughs> okay, last. I'm gonna give you like three rapid fire questions, and you can just pick some. Is that one when you were saying having connections at these companies? I was thinking about like Facebook's not super publicized yet, not secret, trusted partner program. And I've heard like anecdotally of organizations being approached to be a part of this. And when they are, they receive some kind of annual grant, um, and then they are given like access to expedite fact checking. So if they have the more localized information on this or that, you know, ethnic group or militia or whatever, they can then like have that travel faster up the the food chain um, to be deplatformer flagged for hate speech, something like that. Um, but I was just curious if you knew. I, my impression is the answer is no, but do you know if the the pay or the grants being given to these trusted partners is done so with parity across like different regions or globally? Um, I wish I knew the answer to that question. That would be a fantastic research project, but I have no idea. I know that like, you know, there's this careful dance right now around, um, yeah, uh, well, so I've only looked at this really in relation to fact checking, um, and I didn't study whether or not there was parity across. I did study, I did speak to a few different organizations, and one thing that I found really interesting about this dynamic was kind of how the mission of these organizations tend to creep towards whatever Facebook needs, um, and yeah, what a, what a kind of problem it can be for these organizations. But what was the second question? The second one was just around uh, accessibility. And so, you know, like I thought it was interesting when Fleets was released on on Twitter, there was a whole bunch of people coming out saying like, oh, including uh, uh, Ch uh, 
somebody from data and society whose name I feel like I'm about to mispronounce, but um, on, you know, for low vision or blind users that they weren't really able to access the tweets and there's all these issues with screen readers, but how are you thinking about like platform governance and accessibility? Um, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation and debate. I know that there's a lot of work that's being done in this area. I'm like, um, like I am the common social scientist that's always like, well, if I am not doing very specific area on a particular, uh, like uh, work in a particular area, I won't really speak to it because I don't have the evidence to provide. But I know that there's a lot of really interesting work that's being done. I think the person you're you're speaking to is um, speaking about is Chancy. She does a lot of really um, interesting work in this area. I think uh, another woman named Kelsey Cameron has been looking at kind of the co-production of uh, transcripts and um, and how that works at platforms like Netflix um, and and YouTube and and whatnot. But beyond that, I I wish this was an area where I did more work, but I unfortunately can only can only do so much these days, especially. Going back to our early question about moral consensus, I feel like the idea, the notion of being like, I do not know the answer to this question. Here's some other people is something yeah. that could like definitely stand to permeate throughout the field. So I appreciate that. Okay, that's good. Uh, and my last question is uh, basically our ending ritual, which Wait, is- I have, um, I have a quick question. Oh, you wanted to ask something? Okay, go yeah, ahead, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was just, I, you know, I, I had pulled up the, the paper we talked about a little bit earlier, and you have this line here that I, I was looking for the phrase because I really liked it, which was, uh, barring a term from Curtis, he suggests that musicians enjoyed bird freedom. They are at liberty to flit from place to place, from employer to employer, but they are simultaneously free, bereft, that is, of any substantive claim on the means of making a living. And mm -hmm. uh, it it is really interesting to me the trend that you are picking up in cultural production is almost identical to I think how gig worker platforms are described exactly. and they seem to encode like totally identical values right which is like we're not taking things from people we're giving them something freedom and the freedom is poverty <laughs> like Mm -hmm. um, and I was just hoping you could you could comment a little bit about how like these things that I don't think are normally associated, right? Like people who just kind of like, you know, like tweet funny stuff and, you know, kind of Uber drivers, how those how those parallels might actually exist. Oh, man, I love that you asked this question. So, yeah, we, we were in and that's I, I'll be very honest here and say that is a Tarleton line through and through. Um, I remember when he wrote that line. So I am not going to take credit for that line um, in terms of having a, a, a strong moral line. But that was the exact point that we were trying to make with that piece, that you can look at the creative economy in the same terms as the gig economy. And one thing that's really, really frustrating when you're studying the creative economy and cultural industries in general is that people are made to think that they should be giving this, this content or this they should be doing this art or anything and giving it away for free. That's been a very kind of common position, not just in the platform era, but in a lot of other eras as well. And what we were trying to claim with that piece was that there's a significant amount of labor that's going into this work, um, but there's also a significant amount of value that's being made by these platform companies when people are engaging in this work. And this isn't just somebody like 
you know, talking in front of a screen. This is equipment that they're buying. This is hours and hours of editing. This is buying new lighting. This is waiting for videos to upload because in the YouTube ecosystem, it's notoriously slow. Then it's hours of trying to navigate the complicated flagging and demonetization system as people then have to take down their content and re-upload it because it may have gotten accidentally flagged. Or maybe there was like a piece of copyrighted music in the background that they didn't catch on the first place. This is this is a significant amount of labor that goes into this. Um, and what we were trying to also convey, or what I think Tarleton was trying to convey with that line, um, is that, you know, we need to really reconsider when we're talking about the kind of gig economy, the creative economy, people don't become bound to these platforms. They don't just become bound because their audience is there. Um, they become bound because they might be the only platforms available um, because these these um, sites have huge network effects, um, but they can't they can't leave. <laughs> um, and so we need to kind of really find, like we are with the gig economy in general, we need to really radically like reconfigure how we're thinking about the nature of work in this space. There was actually a really interesting thing that happened last night. Influencers were just accepted into SAG, um, the actors union. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that. I'm not quite certain what will happen, um, but it might give like a little bit more bargaining power. There's been other efforts in the past um, for YouTubers to unionize. that has um, been done by some awesome people, but unfortunately, because it wasn't like an existing institution, I just don't think it really took off. But in this case, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty strong organization behind it, and and it might it might really make a difference. We'll see. Thank you. I had no idea about influencers joining SAG. That's dope. That's it happened last cool. night. <laughs> we I missed it. I'm like, <laughs> apparently, apparently, text me, text me, DM me. Um, all right. So we are going to do our closing ritual, which is basically if you could recommend anything you're listening to, watching, um, thinking about to our listeners, it could be on topic or off. Um, although I've been realizing when I asked before off topic, it'd be cool if you could give one of each. Um, and then if you wanted to direct anyone to any of your new work or something you'd like to point them to. Um, oh man, I have been reading so much stuff across three different projects right now. And so it's really hard for me to think of one thing, but I just read um, a really fantastic piece. Oh, it's a book chapter. Um, you know what? Read social media entertainment. Um, Stuart Cunningham and David Craig. It's one of the best books on YouTube that's out there. Um, it's really fantastic. I read through it the other day or the the, uh, the other week um, and was just, I was amazed by how smart this book was. Um, so it's a strong recommend. Um, I'm kind of going through a lot of the books that were written over the last couple of years while I was like in pregnancy and then caring for a newborn haze. So I'm like now only just getting to like, um, <laughs> to um, Ruha's work and to this social media entertainment book and even Mar Hicks's work. So that's the stuff that I'm reading through now. I'm actually like a couple steps behind everybody else, unfortunately. Oh, and then, thank you. For, and I mean, Ruha isn't fair. She did drop two books the same year. So I mean, like, I know I can, I'm just in a constant game of catch up right now, but it's so enjoyable too. And now I can go back and see what everybody like wrote about it. And now I finally get to be part of like this big enjoyment that everyone has. So it's kind of exciting. Um, and then, for fun, I don't know. What am I doing for fun? I don't do anything for fun anymore. I just go on TikTok. 
<laughs> we should have you back on to talk about TikTok at some point. Oh my God. I want to write a paper on TikTok so bad. I'm doing like some small work to prep for it, but I know I'm not going to get to it for like two years based on everything else <laughs> I have to write first. But um, they, that's like a really super interesting site in terms of how people make sense of the algorithm and what they do to, to like help each other to get their content more visibility and stuff like that. It's really great. And also somewhere where I feel like 11 year olds have beat the game. I just, my major like, experience with TikTok is like, yo, I missed my moments. Like, I just oh feel like, like that one video went viral and everybody's like, remember when we used to dance with our legs? Like, I just feel like, old. Oh, I can't move that quickly. Like, there's a lot of things that are required that I feel like I missed my moment. Uh, I ahead, remember a tweet that was like, white people must be so happy that people only dance with their arms now. And it was very, very funny. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, Gen Z is so scary smart. Like they, they kind of terrify me because <laughs> of how smart and like how cool they, they look all the time. No, but don't. we definitely we're here for you if you want to be a sounding board for your ideas around TikTok. If you suddenly feel inspired to like burn a whole bunch of bridges, we're here for all of that. Um, thank you so much. <laughs> I, I just I did well with those questions. I think I did pretty good. You did. You did. It's not just it's not just you. I want my listeners to know that I've always had this idea to start an organization for at-risk academics that just has like a oh huge administrative side. <laughs> Um, so that all my people could get out the hood. We'll be like Red Cross. We'll build one house for a PhD student and just everybody else will be banking it. Um, <laughs> and on that note, we have a Patreon. Please subscribe to our Patreon. Write us, review us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google. So we do, have, we have some connections to, to the big tech companies. Um, and you could just definitely check us out on Columbia, the American Assembly at Insight Center's website. This is We Be Imagining, y'all. You can hit us up at webeimagining at gmail.com. And that's it.